0: You know, I think sometimes we look at the almighty dollar as, as, oh, we need to get lots of money in order to, you know, be happy. But once you start, you know, overusing everything around you and things start to die or things start to disappear and it doesn't look like home or it doesn't look like peace anymore, are you really happy?
1: Energy sovereignty,
2: sustainability,
1: and resilience
2: are central components to global climate action,
1: the protection of Mother Earth,
2: and the safeguarding of generations to come.
1: Tansi, hello and welcome to the Decolonizing Power podcast series, a series that will take you to three regions around the globe to explore how community-led and partnered clean energy projects have been successful. It is my great privilege and honor to be co-hosting this series with my good friend, Freddie Hupe Campbell. Freddie is an amazing woman who is passionate about meaningful climate action and empowering communities. She is a proud Métis woman born on the traditional unsurrendered territories of the Tanaha and Kinabasque peoples, also known as Kimberley, British Columbia. She joins us today from the unceded, unsurrendered, traditional territories that the Algonquin and Anishinaabe people have and continue to defend and protect, otherwise known as Ottawa.
2: Hi, hi. Thank you so much, Ms. and James Harper. I am so grateful to be hosting this series with you. James is originally from Sturgeon Lake Cree Nation in Treaty 8 territory in what is known as Northern Alberta, Canada. And he joins you today from Treaty One Territory, also known as Winnipeg, Manitoba. James is a brilliant person with many accomplishments and just such a beautiful soul to go with it all. I could not be more thrilled to have such an incredible teammate and dear friend on this project. So really looking forward to the episode today and all those to come. June is National Indigenous History Month in what is known as Canada, and this is significant in many ways. To me, it is a dedication to acknowledging history and honouring loss and sacrifice, a time to learn and listen to our sacred knowledge keepers, and a time to share and come together in the strength of our resilient communities. We could not be prouder to share this powerful interview with you today from a truly inspiring and strong Indigenous leader and community, but before we get to that, I would really love and appreciate James's thoughts on what Indigenous History Month means to him.
1: Yes, thank you for that, Freddie. So indeed, it's it's a time to to celebrate and a time to to gather, uh, but it's also a time to reflect, and it's also a time to to honor the relationships that we have with nature. Um, indeed, the twenty first of June. Uh, the most the, the most sun we'll ever get in a, in a year. Celebrating the solstice is so important. You know, is one of the biggest highlights of the year, and sort of signifies uh, an important moment of where the cycle repeats. My understanding as a as a Cree man of of nature is that it operates in a cyclical manner, and indeed, uh, from what my grandmother my cookum has told me, it was something to be celebrated and something that that brought together the community, brought together our nation, uh, and continues to do so. Uh, we definitely feasted and, and shared, um, you know, all the things that, that we hunted and gathered um, as a community, and, and we danced. Um, and then on top of that, um, this was also a moment for, for uh, prayer uh, and for ceremony. I know that um, my family um, and my communities here, especially also in Winnipeg here in Treaty 1 territory, exercise sun dancing as well around this time as, as a, also a very spiritual time to, to do so. But, you know, recently June has also become more of a political a movement, uh, quote unquote, a renewal of, of the attention that needs to be given towards uh, indigenous people's rights. And so every, every June 21st also comes the, the importance that indeed, as Indigenous peoples, we have uh, rights that should be honored for me as a treaty person, um, the treaty rights among others. But also as a treaty person, I also have a responsibility to make sure that those rights are protected for, for future generations. Um, and this is why I continue to do the work, a lot of the climate action work. Um, and sharing these stories. Um, and I'm super privileged to, to do so with my friend Freddie, along with all of our um, very inspiring guests on, on the show.
2: This episode and the next will take us into the community of Kiashke Zaging Anishinaabe, KZA also known as Bay First Nation, an Ojibwe community on the western shoreline of Lake Nipigan in northwestern Ontario. We will connect with AJ Swayga, a former councillor to KZA and graduate of the Indigenous Clean Energy 2020 Catalyst Training Program in 2017. This program is delivered by Indigenous community and technical mentors experienced and knowledgeable in communities transitioning to clean and renewable energy. Let's jump right into it, James, and begin with AJ's introduction.
0: Uh, My name is AJ Squega, and I come from um, Gold Bay First Nation. I became the Mushkuwazewan Energy Projects Coordinator back in 2017 for my community. We have the solar energy storage microgrid now in our community, and it's offsetting both 20 to 30% of our diesel power a year. It's providing My community with clean solar power uh, during sunny days. And, you know, it's a game changer for Canada. We want to share with other Indigenous communities, uh, remote off-grid communities that want to get off diesel as well. So I'm happy to be here. It's a little bit about who I am and uh, thank you. Uh,
1: And just for our our audience, just to understand Go Bay a bit further, uh, if I understand correctly, Go Bay is, is near Thunder Bay, Ontario. Correct. And it's sort of uh, sort of like a, more of a southern latitude in reference to the to the whole country. Um, right. So so you do get quite a bit of solar.
0: <laughs> yeah. Gold Bay is about two hours north of Thunder Bay, Ontario. And um, it's one out of four communities in the north here that were uh, deemed non-economical to join to the grid. Um there was the the regulators that uh, did a study, and it just wasn't economic to have uh, our community hooked up to the grid. It's, it is accessible through highway, so you can get there through highway and then and then a dirt road. and it's uh it's a beautiful community. like I love going out there and just spending my time on the boat in the river. When you're in Gold Bay, you get just a beautiful view of the rising sun in the east. And and Lake Nibigan, you know, all the communities around Lake Nibigan come from Jackfish Island. So when I think about my time in Gull Bay, I think about the water, I think about the lake, and I think about the connections that we have with all the communities around the lake. And we're so lucky to have that fresh water, you know, right at our our fingertips. And to be able to just take a step walk in the backyard, I spent a lot of time during COVID uh, going exploring you know, the territory, you know, the territory of KZA, because, you know, I needed Mother Nature. I needed to go connect to the land, you know, uphills, downhills. Gold Bay Area is is not, it's not flat. It's got, you know, the lake. It's got some hills, some streams, rivers. It's got some rapids and waterfalls. So it's it's beautiful. And it's all within, you know, half an hour drive in, in any direction.
1: Wow. Thank you, AJ. I love hearing about the beauty of your territory. Uh, it kind of makes me want to go visit as soon as I can.
2: I hear you, James. And I'm, I'm coming on that trip with you for sure. And with, with those landscapes so beautifully illustrated for us, AJ, would you be willing to share what sparked your clean energy journey and your desire to develop a clean energy project within your community?
0: First, I was looking at the problem. Right. Driving, you know, spilling gas now and then, you know, you feel like, oh, man, that's not that's not good for the environment or driving heavy equipment. You know, all this fossil fuels and thinking, oh, man, there's got to be a better way because you see all the the oil spills across other projects. You know, it's in the news. And then I started seeing this must have been about 15 years ago, 20 years ago, looking on Facebook and YouTube and uh, all these solar projects that are happening in, in other parts of of the world and they go man that's really cool stuff like look germany's got this great big solar tower that's providing you know so much power for for their for their country you know how could we do something like that in, in my community and uh, never thinking anything at other time like thinking it's impossible you know like, yeah. i don't know how to do anything like that but then a job posting comes through my emails and Gobe is looking for a Mashkawizewan Energy Projects Coordinator. I don't think, ah, that's cool. Um, energy Projects, I know nothing about energy other than what I see on Facebook. I know the electricity scares me and I'm afraid to get zapped. Um, but I love the idea of working for my community, do something that was positive, helpful, and help my community grow in a good way. We didn't know nothing about energy, my community, you know, about energy projects. We needed some help in that. And we hired Lumos. And the nice thing about Lumos is, at the time, they had that 2020 Catalyst program. So I joined that 2020 Catalyst program. And man, I'd say that that's a life changer right there.
1: Over 100 Indigenous clean energy champions have gone through the Catalyst program, myself included, And been given an opportunity to learn about community engagement and communication, economic development and business planning, employment creation and skills enhancement, project financing and equity capital, smart reinvestment and community legacy, and so much more. You can join Icenet.org to connect with our Indigenous clean energy community from coast to coast to coast, explore a myriad of resources and topics, and watch some incredible project videos, and stories.
0: It's amazing when I look back at three years ago, four years ago, of where I was and where I am now. You know, we, I, I've been to college and you learn about mainstream society's projects or work or, you know, corporates. But in 2020 Catalyst, you're learning about what other Indigenous communities have done. And not realizing all the amounts of projects that indigenous communities have already led and we're a part of, and you feel inspired, you feel so much hope and and pride. Now I'm a newbie coming in to clean energy and going through that training, you just feel you feel empowered. You know, you're seeing other indigenous, First Nation, Inuit, and Métis communities doing it. Then then you can say, I can do it. You know, and I got the the help if I need to to call upon. So I went from knowing little, very little, a smidge of uh, of energy, to feeling like I I I can climb a mountain now of of energy projects. You know, I'm not I'm not going to climb it the fastest. I'm going to take my time, but I'm I'm going to get there. I believe I can get there now, and that's because of 20kallet. C- that's because of all the other groundwork that Indigenous communities have have pioneered the way absolutely absolutely
1: and i it's so it's so refreshing to hear that uh you know your motivation came from within and with your community and you know that spirit
2: definitely james and as aj mentioned the impactful work that his community has done does not stand alone there are thousands of small to large scale clean energy projects occurring from coast to coast to coast here that are led and are partnered by indigenous communities. These projects include wind, solar, hydro, tidal, biomass, storage, and geothermal, as well as home retrofits and transportation projects, which are all key to offering communities safe, affordable and reliable access to energy and housing. And it's all a part of the cyclical process in community. And AJ, I'd love to hear more about your thoughts on this.
0: Yeah. And you know what? My goal from the from the beginning was to stay in my community and, and be part of my community throughout you know my evolutionary stages of my life. Um, we talk about building capacity and and helping our communities grow, and I'm committed to that. And uh, I'm happy that that the project turned out the way it did, and that I found some new friends and family within the ICE network. And uh, It's really awesome to feel where this is going and to feel what clean energy has brought into Gold Bay.
2: It is incredible to see all of the different effects that your project has had within your community, AJ. And as you're speaking, the term sustainability comes to mind when you talk about future generations and thinking ahead and making decisions for them. So when this term comes up in clean energy discussions and we're thinking about just and lasting climate action, as an individual and within your community, for the environment, for the animals at large, what does sustainability look like to you? And how do you feel it's been achieved through your project?
0: Sustainability is, is to me anyways, is you're, you're not wasting, you know? You're utilizing around you only what you need, nothing more. You know, my grandfather, he, he was an entrepreneur as well. My grandfather, Tim, in Sr. And he, you know, he started a logging business in the community. But it was important, you know, to have that sustainability, to realize that you need economics, you need money, you know, community members need the work, but we got to make sure there's sustainability. And uh, we need to make sure we don't cut down all the trees like clear cut, but cut down one and leave one, leave one standing so that there is that uh, sustainability and what we do. So I think that's important, only getting what you need, not as not, nothing more, you know. I think sometimes we look at the almighty dollar as as oh, we need to get lots of money in order to, you know, be happy. But once you start, you know, overusing everything around you and things start to die or things start to disappear and it doesn't look like home or it doesn't look like peace anymore. Are you really happy?
1: So I'm just going to jump in here to note what clean energy microgrids are. They're decentralized electricity systems, usually off-grid or have the option of being off-grid, and they are supplied by renewable energy generation, such as wind, solar, geothermal, run-of-the-river hydro, and paired with energy storage, with batteries being the most common form of storage, uh, with a control system putting it all together which together makes and ensures the provision of reliable, high-quality power, uh, clean power for local needs, for the community, as well as any sort of industrial or commercial purposes that are also within the community.
2: That's a great way to conceptualize clean energy microgrids, James. I'd also add that a few reasons why they can be a good fit for communities are that they're very adaptable to geography, And as you mentioned, they can also be scalable to create larger and cost-effective impacts, which is so key. They also help to lower greenhouse gas emissions and offer different hybrid solutions to relieve the need for fossil fuel backups. Clean energy microgrids offer affordable and reliable access to communities, which is a key part of this podcast series and why we're bringing you these different clean energy story examples, none of which would be possible without having sponsors. So We'll take a second here to recognize our sponsors for this podcast. We would like to take a moment to express our gratitude to all of the Indigenous and global community members, national Indigenous organizations, key governments, clean energy and development assistance agencies, microgrid developers, utilities, academic institutes, and other organizations who have contributed to this podcast.
1: A particular expression of appreciation to Natural Resources Canada and the Clean Energy for Remote Communities team for supporting this podcast and Indigenous clean energy projects and programming from coast to coast to coast.
2: I would also like to express a deep gratitude to the ICE team. Thank you for the support and the collaborative effort on this project. And thank you all for your tireless work to take action and make changes for an inclusive and just clean energy transition.
1: And as AJ will, will also share with us and his community, we're talking about, and for a lot of communities, remote communities, we're talking about displacing diesel generated power. And along with diesel-generated power comes the risk to the movement and distribution of that fuel um, and risk to spills, for example, uh, where remote communities are typically co-located with very sensitive uh, sort of ecological uh, natural habitats. Um, So so a risk to spill is even heightened even more, um, and we want to avoid that as much as possible. Not to mention, you know, the noise pollution and various other emissions that come out of diesel generators that that reduce the air quality in the community.
2: Just to add on to your points, James, not only are there negative health impacts that occur within communities from generator diesel exhaust, but it is an expensive and dirty form of energy for electricity, heating and transport. And speaking from the Canadian context, family income in remote communities are often much lower than averages across the country and the cost of diesel-based energy is a major cost of living burden and for many people and a fair percentage of communities it can contribute to energy poverty
1: and even just forward looking too you know the, the cost of diesel among other petroleum products you know is always uncertain and always at the risk of, of geopolitical will uh, and so we want to make sure that communities who don't necessarily have a lot of you know backups and resources to to mitigate those risks, we want to make sure that clean energy can completely remove those risks um, and alleviate you know the price and volume risks that diesel based generation holds. Um, so there's a, there's a whole bunch of of things that we're trying to to mitigate uh, through clean and reliable energy production within within a community. So in our conversation with AJ, he illustrated how microgrids works, uh, particularly in his community and some of the impacts that they have experienced.
0: We're looking at about 1,020 solar panels. So we got five rows of, of solar panels that are connected through combiner boxes to an e-house, an electrical house, which is just a big C-can, but it's, you know, retrofitted really nice. Right beside that is the battery battery energy storage system with a battery controller. Um, Those solar panels charge up those batteries. So when there's enough sunlight and those batteries reach 80%, a signal goes from the microgrid controller to the diesel generator controller, saying, you know, we've got enough power here, start shutting down the diesels. We're going to provide the community with clean power. Good afternoon. It's March the 5th, 2021. 20, the diesel off command came at 11.51 a.m. It is twelve 12.11 uh, 12, p.m. Uh, The load for the B unit is 98, and the solar power is 134 kilowatts. The B breaker open and we're on solar power. So then, you know, on sunny days, we can see uh, those diesel generators turn off, you know, early in the morning eight o'clock eight thirty, whatever when that sun comes up sometimes it comes up pretty early in the summer times you can see you know 12 to 16 hours of, well, i shouldn't say 16 hours might be a little too much but maybe um of just strictly solar solar power to the community in the winter times not as much penetration because the days are shorter and then snow does affect the sun from coming onto the solar panels. That's why we got to make sure we're keeping an eye on the snow coverage and going out there and, and cleaning up the solar panels. So that's how the project looks like. It's got a nice big sign in the front too. That that uh, That's another com- uh, community engagement tool that we do is uh, update the number on the sign. And almost like the baseball games where you go and put up home team score to you know, home run and they change the numbers on the sign. Well, we have that for us, except it's diesel reduction numbers. So I think at the last time that they changed the sign, we were looking at uh, 90, just under 91,000 liters offset since the site turned on. That's
1: awesome. I want that installed for every clean microgrid project, please. That sign. There's a lot of uh, even personal pride, I imagine, that comes out of just changing the numbers, you know, just realizing how much diesel is offset. That's that's awesome, AJ. Thanks. Yeah, it was a
0: good idea. Um, <laughs> it was pretty cool. I remember, I'm going to share you. I'm kind of going, I'm going to go a little bit off the beta path with this story and then come back to it, if you don't mind. I'll tell you a story about a rice lake we found. So, my dad's dad, Leonard King, said that there was wild rice down that stream off the highway. He was pointing, he was telling my dad, down that stream there, I'm pretty sure there's wild rice down there. Growing up, I've never heard of any wild rice around my community. I remember hearing stories that the wild rice beds were ruined because of mercury from the logging that happened with the trees going down the river and the flooding, the flooding from the dams. So then when, I, when my dad was telling me that, because he, he, he remembers his dad, my grandfather sharing that with him. And I says, well, we should go check it out then. So we went to go check it out a couple of years ago. We brought the canoe. We paddled in there. And he says, and I didn't even know what wild rice, I've never seen wild rice in my life just on TV, on YouTube, or on, on Facebook, friends, you know, all my friends uh, harvest wild rice, but I've personally never seen it. So me and my dad were canoeing out there, and says, he said it was down this lake, you know, we're, we check Google Earth, and we're, we're somewhere around here, and we're paddling, and it says, I don't know, I just see a lot of, um, you know, cattails or some weeds, it doesn't look like wild rice, and it was getting dark. So I says, oh, let's go check. There's some grass over there. This further down. We'll go. It's getting late. I said, just go check this one, and then we'll we'll head back. And as soon as I got to that grass, I can see the wild rice in those little husks. I said, no way. As soon as I seen that, I just felt shivers and my hair just standing up. You know, and you felt, I don't know. There was a spiritual moment that I felt. You know, with my dad and thinking about my grandfather. Because my grandfather said, I'm pretty sure, like, I believe there's wild rice down there. And then my dad, knowing that, just had the curiosity to share that with me. And then I I said, well, let's go check it out. So seeing that ancestral wisdom or that knowledge that, you know, that someone had that we we finally listened and, and went to go try it out. And we found some wild rice. We can go harvest wild rice from there for families. Share how to harvest that wild rice so that it's sustainable a sustainable food if we ever needed to.
1: So we'll leave you folks with this encapsulating imagery in your minds and continue on with AJ's story in the next episode. Freddie, what were some highlights you took from this episode and up to this point in our interview?
2: You know, James, AJ is such an incredible storyteller, and there's always so much wisdom and teaching packed into his words. So this interview gave me a lot to reflect back on. As AJ took us through the beginning of his clean energy journey, he illustrated the importance of having someone or a few people to champion and push forward a project. And the importance of working to engage and collaborate with community is so key to ensuring those rights, values, and fairness are upheld in a collective manner. I also think that AJ offered some very realistic pathways and steps Prior to developing a community partnered clean energy project. So, I'm really excited to discuss some of the critical points regarding environmental considerations and impacts, as well as financial mechanisms in the next episode. What about you, James? What are some of your key takeaways?
1: Uh, it's just, it's always so moving to hear AJ speak. And I get the sense that it was also just a great personal experience for him to develop and learn. And, and to do something positive for his community on, on, ter- on a territory that sounds so beautiful. And you can just tell the way from the way he speaks that he wants to make sure that that's protected. Um, so I'm, I'm very moved by, you know, how much work he has actually put into this to make that vision come to life. Um, and, you know, progress the development of his community through whatever he can do. Um, And I just I'm just so grateful that he got a chance to share some some of those moments with us today. Um, Yeah, just very moving. So you can see pictures of the clean energy microgrid, the e-house and the sign that AJ was mentioning in the highlights for the first episode on our Instagram
2: And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to our podcast to connect with us and the hundreds of wonderful folks in our Indigenous clean energy community. Please go to icenet.org or you can also find Indigenous clean energy on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and by the traditional phone uh, method.
1: Awesome. Hi, hi. Thank you, Freddie.
2: Hi, hi, James.
1: This podcast is produced by Indigenous Clean Energy, with production assistance and edits by Alexandra Jericho, music by Quentin Kondo, cover art by Tara Miller, and the many other souls who have supported and made it possible. We are grateful for you all. Thank you. Hi, hi.
2: Our next episode will continue this wonderful journey, so please stay tuned for its release on June 16th.